0: Thank you, Melissa and team. Thanks for that. Thanks for leading us. Welcome. My name's Nathan. Glad you're here. This is Emmaus Church Community. Welcome to our gathering. Um, I especially wanted to say, let's see, I was excited when I saw Bill and Mary Ferris, and now I don't see them. Where'd they go? There they are. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. It's your new uh, We've been praying that Bill would have the strength to stand again and to walk again. And this is the first time they've been back with us for a long time, so welcome. I'm so glad that you are both here. Um, Yeah, amen. Go ahead, raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to start in Philippians, which is a letter Paul writes to a church. It's at the end of the Bible, a small little book. Um, I'll start there. While that's happening, if there's a basket under your seat because you chose an aisle spot, go ahead and grab that, pass it down. If you're new and would like to fill out a card or have a prayer request or a comment, you're welcome to use the cards for that and we'll collect them in a little bit. All right, Um, last week we've been praying for these folks this week and so I just wanted to invite you to celebrate with us. Uh, These are some folks who were baptized or confirmed last week. Vanessa on Sunday afternoon confirmed her faith in Christ as a new Christian. It was a a blessing to pray for her. Uh, This is a picture of Micah Carpenter right after he was baptized. Here's a couple of pictures of Nisha right after she was baptized. Awesome. Here's Bodie, responding to his, giving his baptismal vows, promising to follow Christ for the rest of his life. <laughs> Love it. It's like new babies. This is Emma. I think it's my favorite picture of the day because of her little hand on my hand. Just can't get enough of that. Yep, there she is. And Robin. Amen, amen. Let's just celebrate that again. I think it's just fantastic. Amen, amen. All right, so there are sermons where you might just sort of take them in like a glass of iced tea, sitting by the pool, sun on your back. This is not one of those sermons. This is like, I haven't eaten in three days, and Thanksgiving dinner is in front of me. Like, voracious, like, dig in. You ready for that? Can you bring that kind of passion to it this morning? I'm going to try. got a whole lot to cover, um, and it's important stuff. And it's going to require you to turn on your brain and think a bit to enter into this, um, but you will not be sorry. So here we go. Ready? Go. Uh, Sometimes bad things accomplish good things. You notice that? Sometimes things that seem bad or things that are actually bad, they lead to good things. Like my friend who lost his job. And had to move to a new town. But then found this fantastic community. And his whole life got wrapped into it. His whole family got, got wrapped into it. Losing a job is a bad thing. But in this case, it led to a very good thing. Or like my friend who got hurt, who was injured. She missed a whole softball season. That was her life. But she couldn't play. And, and so in not playing for a season, she discovered that she loved tutoring kids in the inner city. And so what was a bad thing? She got injured. Injuries are bad things. Led to the discovery of a really good thing, which then set her on a whole different path for her life. Right? I've been thinking about what my life would look like if I drew my life as a line. Uh, I want my life to look like this. I think we all want our lives to look like this, upward and to the right, just perpetual improvement. Right? Uh, most of us, however, would probably be pretty happy if things just stayed stable. Could we just keep it like on the like consistent, just straight line. In reality, most of the time, life looks like this. I mean, it's up and down and up and down all over the place. And then, when we come to a season of life which looks like this, it can feel very disconcerting. It can feel threatening. It can feel uh, like everything is is going bad. It can feel troubling. We say things like, nothing's working out right. Everything's wrong everything's bad right now sometimes bad things lead to good things though sometimes bad things lead to good sometimes there's a bigger picture behind the bad thing and when you step back a bit it's not that the bad thing ceases to be bad because maybe it is actually a bad thing But sometimes you can step back from that bad thing. You can see the bigger picture. You begin to get perspective on how maybe God will even use this bad thing to accomplish his great purposes, actually accomplish something really good. If you drew Jesus' life as a line, here's what it would look like. This is the shape of Jesus' ministry. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He appears, this is in chapter 2 of Philippians, he appears to be quoting A popular hymn, an early Christian hymn. And it's a hymn about Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. Um, Watch how we see Jesus descend and then ascend again. This is in verse 5 of Philippians 2. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And now he's going to talk to us about Jesus. Who being in very nature God, way up here, Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It just doesn't get lower than that. And then, therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth under the earth every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so here we have the life of Jesus linearly this incredible descent from heaven to death and not just death but death on a cross and then this rebound this ascension back to glory all right Today, we're here. We're at the bottom of the the V. We're at the lowest point in the life of Jesus, the death on the cross. So what we're going to talk about today in general is Jesus' death, though, of course, we'll push that to the specific. Recently, I heard an author say that um, death is the new obscenity. Death is the new word that is impolite in uh, certain conversations. In most cases, our culture tries to avoid even thinking about death. We avoid preparing for death. We often out and out deny the reality of death. It's like we're passengers on the Titanic, and we're drinking and we're dancing while the ship's been irreparably damaged, and we just are going to choose to ignore it. Or what's interesting is that sometimes you hear people talk as if the only option the only way to approach or to have a perspective on death is just to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Sort of this, hey, hands in the air. Like, this is the, only, this is the only approach that makes sense. But Christianity offers a very different perspective. Here's the key distinction between the common perspective on death and the Christian perspective on death. The key distinction is that from a Christian perspective, death is not the end. Uh, And I don't just mean that something comes next. I mean, actually, that like the early church fathers refer to death as the second birth. Um, It's more of a beginning than an end. And then there's even more to the Christian perspective on death. When it comes to death, Jesus, the one we follow, has been there, and he has done that. And this makes all the difference in the world. This makes all the difference in the world. Today we'll look at the essential summary statement of Jesus' personal experience with death, and it's an experience, his is an experience which redefines death once and for all. Forever it seems that death was the period at the end of every sentence. You lived, you died, you're born, you lived, and you died, period. And that's how all stories ended, right? But then when Jesus entered into death, that period at the end of the sentence was erased and replaced With a comma, and so now and forevermore, death no longer has the last word, right? Now it's just a pause on the way to the ultimate uh, reality, which is the resurrection, the culmination, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks on Easter morning. Death no longer has the last word. Now, even today, as we read uh, through a series of verbs that all sound very bad, things that happen to Jesus, we'll begin to see how Jesus, in entering into death, redefined it forever, okay? It's a move that Jesus makes that enables Paul to refer to death as something that has been swallowed up in victory. So victory is actually eating death, consuming it, And then it will be no more. He says, uh, he quotes the prophet Hosea, who says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's like the, what, used to be a, what used to be evil and destructive and painful about this has, has been changed because of a greater reality. So the writers of the Apostles' Creed, they pin Jesus' suffering, that's what we said last week, to a specific time and place, even a specific person, Pontius Pilate. And that is to say that suffering for Jesus and therefore suffering for Christians or maybe suffering for all humans is always specific. It's never general. It's always specific. It always has a real time, real place. We talked about that last week. After declaring that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, suffered in this specific way, Christians in the Apostles' Creed go on to declare how Jesus' suffering continued using four brutal very specific verbs these are the verbs that he was crucified that he died that he was buried and that he descended these are rough verbs these are bad things so let's walk through these four verbs And then I want to ask one question, and the question is, why does the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he he died, that he was buried, and that he descended, why does that matter? What difference does that make? Okay, that's where we're headed. So, number one, crucified. Jesus was crucified. Nobody disagrees that this is how Jesus died. It's probably the least, it's probably the point about Jesus' life that is the least debated. Everybody knows this is how, if you know one thing about Jesus, you know that he was crucified almost certainly the most agreed-upon detail of his life. It was a brutal Roman form of execution. I imagine almost all of us are familiar with it, where somebody is hung on a cross um, and dies of, uh, essentially of suffocation. Um, it was reserved for political enemies. It was reserved for criminal offenders of the worst kind. Did you know that Roman citizens could not be crucified? Roman citizens were not crucified. It was below the citizenry. When, when Rome wanted to make a point, like with the slave rebellion of Spartacus or later the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD where the temple or when the temple was destroyed, they would make that point with mass crucifixions. It was meant to do more than just kill somebody. It was meant to totally demoralize somebody. It was meant to dehumanize somebody. Right? And to send a clear message, which is you don't mess with Rome. Some take note of the lack of detail given in the Gospels about Jesus' crucifixion. It's referred to almost shockingly simply, Jesus was crucified. We don't get a lot of details about it. The reason, according to one um, writer, William Barclay, is that the crucifixion was so common in that time, there are several first century accounts of thousands of people who were crucified in single Roman campaigns. In other words, everybody knew what happened in a crucifixion. Everybody understood it. Nobody needed you to detail it out. What is added in the Gospels to the word that Jesus is crucified is this really important phrase, and it's the phrase, for us. Because this is the Christian understanding of what happened in the crucifixion. The idea that he was crucified for us is core, This is core to what we understand about it. Paul and other New Testament writers, they understand this. They even embrace it, which is sometimes a bit shocking. Paul refers to Jesus as taking the very nature of a slave, which is to quote that Philippians passage. He then says that Jesus became a curse for us in his letter to the Galatians. In his letter to the Corinthians, the second one, he says, for our sake... The one who did not know sin became sin. Very strong language. Notice the phrases, for us and for our sake. It's amazing. Friends, it's amazing. The Christian perspective of God is amazing. Not only does God become a human like us, but then he dies for us. Okay. It, it's just, it's amazing. Um, so he was crucified he died, and what's key here is he, he died all the way. He was all the way dead. He was not, he was not mostly dead, right? He is only most, no he's not, he was all dead. The gospel writers make a point to record that Jesus' strength is remarkably diminished. It's severely weakened through a beating that happens early Friday before the crucifixion when he's flogged. It's a beating that, would have, that often did kill people in and of itself. And then after just a few hours on the cross, you might, you might remember that the other criminals being held on, uh, crucified next to Jesus, were, their legs were broken Remember that? Why? To hasten their death so they could no longer push themselves up for a breath of air any longer. But when they come to Jesus, they don't break his legs. Why? Because he's dead already. A point that is affirmed when the soldier pierces his side with a spear. Blood and water have now full, filled the lungs and they flow out. The centurion overseeing the crucifixion remarks in Mark 15 That Jesus breathed his last. The, The travelers on the road to Emmaus, confused about a lot of things, clear on one. Jesus has died. Okay, that's crystal clear for them. Even after the resurrection, early Christian preachers like Peter make continual and repeated reference to the fact that Jesus died. Why such care in clarifying such an obvious or simple point? Well, early Christians, I mean early critics of Christianity, the Gnostics, suggested that Jesus' suffering was just an illusion. Gnostics embraced the divinity of Jesus, but had a real hard time understanding that if he was God, he could ever suffer. So they reject his humanity. There's even a Gnostic writer that says that it actually wasn't Jesus who died on the cross. It was Simon from Cyrene, who's forced to carry Jesus' cross, and then the guy says Jesus escaped through the crowds. I mean, they just try to do all kinds of possible other solutions because there's no way Jesus could have actually died because they don't embrace. They have a hard time with the idea that Jesus is human. That's ancient critics. Modern critics have a hard time with the idea that Jesus is God. We have a harder time with his divinity than with his humanity. And so modern critics have a whole host of other alternatives to the reality that Jesus died. Like one of the ones that you may have heard is the swoon theory. That's the official name, the swoon theory, that Jesus passed out. And later on, he kind of wakens up again with some smelling salts or something. But the early Christian record and the early Roman records agree. Jesus died. He was all the way dead. What do they say in the creed to affirm the reality that he was all the way dead? They say he was buried. Right, in an actual tomb all the way. Why is buried important? Because when you're it is being buried that marks the finality of death, is it not? This is where the funeral ends. This is, it's the that's the final. That's the proof. That's the, okay, it's over now. He was buried by saying that jesus was buried the writers of the creed meant that jesus get this this is important that jesus experiences the fullness of death and that he descended all the way to the dead or to the realm or the state or the place farthest separated from god's dwelling in other words jesus went where dead people go because that's what you do when you die The fact that Jesus was buried is a really critical point. It's not just a ceremonial detail. So it's so critical that beginning in the 4th century, the Apostles' Creed began to include a new phrase, relatively. So the Creed's written in the 2nd century. Beginning in the 4th century, in order to make sure we understand the significance of the buried part, a new phrase is added, and it's the phrase descended into hell. It's as if they need to emphasize the meaning of the first word, buried. So Jesus is crucified, and then he dies, and then he's buried, and that happens on a Friday, and then in a few weeks we'll celebrate that he rises again on Easter morning, which is a Sunday. So tied up in the mystery of his death and burial is the question, what was he doing on Saturday? Where was he between Friday night and and Sunday morning? What's going on there? And that mysterious but critical part of the story is made more explicit with the phrase, he descended into hell. All right. Now, a couple weeks ago, we handed out um, at our annual meeting, we handed out a creed, and I asked you to give me comments about the creed that would hopefully inform what I the way I approach the teaching. One of the things that was most commented on, most confusing, was this descended into hell. Where is that and what's that about? So in in light of that, let me do a little sidebar here on like a short, brief history of hell. As I said, the phrase descended into hell was added to the Apostles' Creed in the 4th century. The creed written in Latin. So we have an English translation of the original, right? The English is what's confusing. The English is what's confusing. Because the meaning of the word hell has changed since the 4th century. Originally, hell meant the place of the departed. Okay, like the Greek word Hades or the Hebrew word Sheol. It's the place you go when you die. It's the place of the departed. But later and since the 17th century, the English word hell has been used to refer to a place of punishment, a state of final retribution for the godless which is a concept found in the Bible. It is a concept found in the teachings of Jesus. But that concept is not referred to by the word Hades, but as Gehenna. So there's two words in the Bible that we translate into one word in English, hell. Gehenna was a place that literally existed in Jesus' day. It was this constantly burning dump on the outside of town, always on fire. And Jesus would use Gehenna as a metaphor for a place or a state of punishment. Like in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. (laughs) It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The word there is thrown into Gehenna. And he says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. Jesus, using strong, exaggerating kind of language, he's not actually wanting people to pluck their eyes out, but he's trying to show just how important it is, how critical it is to prioritize anything that would distract us. from. And then, he, and then he quotes Isaiah, the prophet, and he says, referring to Gehenna or to hell, the, worm, the place where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, so when the creed says that Jesus descended into hell, it means the understanding of hell as the place of the departed. It means the Hades version, the Sheol version. It does not mean the place of eternal punishment. That's what confuses us, isn't it? When we imagine Jesus going to a place of eternal punishment. By descended, it doesn't mean Jesus actually goes physically or geographically lower into a lower place, but that he sort of descends into a place of lower dignity or worth to the dead, where souls and bodies are separated. People are not whole anymore. They're disembodied spirits. They're awaiting the resurrection, the reunification, the wholeness. So while it is accurate to, to recite in the creed, Jesus descended into hell A better translation for us today based on our use of the word hell in English is the one that gets to the original meaning intended by the writers of the creed, which is Jesus descended to the dead. All right. And just to further push the geekiness, here here it is in Latin. I thought thought this was super cool because I don't know Latin, but Latin, you can actually see it here in the Latin. So, uh, see the first line? Uh, Let's see. I can use the cool green thing too. Pew, pew. Um, greedo, credo, a <laughs> grito, that's funny, Star Wars. Uh we I believe in, in God the Father, see it right there, God the Father, Almighty, Creator, Heaven, Earth, and in Jesus Christ, uh, his only Son, our Lord, our Lord, who was conceived of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, born virgin mary suffered the word that's that's like the root of the word passion we hear we hear about the passion play or christ's passion it means the suffering suffered under pontius pilate crucified died buried sepulcher see it and then descended to the dead to inferno Because of Dante's poem, and because of Jesus' reference to the place of the burning, we think of Inferno as like this big fire. It originally meant the place of the departed, right? The place of the dead. So, Okay, so where does the idea that Jesus goes to the dead even come from? Last thing, quickly, is this just conjecture? Did we make this up? Okay, it is certainly mysterious, but there is scriptural support for it. Here's the main source. It's in Peter's letter, uh, if you'd like to turn to it, 1 Peter chapter 3, but I'm going to put it all on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, very strange passage, but here's the source for the belief. And I'm remember, I'm going to tell you why I think this matters in just a second. Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, that's referring to the crucifixion, but made alive in the In the spirit. His spirit doesn't die, right? So here's what's going on on Saturday. What's Jesus doing between Friday and Sunday? Friday and Sunday. Here's what's going on, according to Peter. After being made alive, (laughs) he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Who is that? To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built if you can follow peter here you're amazing right so we've gone from the death of christ to jesus preaching in the place of imprisoned spirits reference to genesis 6 which is a long time ago with noah and then in it referring still to the flood only a few people eight in all were saved through water and now peter's on to something else this is the water that symbolizes baptism that also saves you Not the removal of the body, or dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Goes on, next chapter, 4, verse 6. Picks up the theme again. He's referring to pagans, and he says, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Fascinating? Yes. Mysterious? Totally mysterious. Confusing? Yeah, I think so. It's one of those passages that answers one question and asks about six or seven more. Like It just opens up a big box. What, what is clear, though? What is made clear by the writing of Peter here? Two things. One, Jesus went all the way to the place where dead people go. Okay? That's where he went. He went all the way. Not part of the way. He doesn't understand. Oh, yes, he does. Because he went all the way to the place of the dead. And second thing that is made clear is what did he do there? Well, he preached there. That's what's so awesome. He preached there. He proclaims a message. What did he say? Nobody knows, but everybody has a theory, right? Probably something like let me explain to you what's going on right now. I just died, but I'm still alive, right? Because I just overcame death itself. Just giving you notice. The, the old order of things is gone because I just rearranged cosmic reality. Death is no longer the end. Just letting you know I'm still alive, and now I'm out. Some sort of proclamation, right? Some sort of notice that he gives. All right, right, so there's a blitz through four verbs. Crucified, died, buried, descended. And now quickly, here's three reasons this matters. Three reasons this matters. Three reasons why those four verbs make a real difference in life. Why does this matter? Number 1, you can be free from fear in this life. You really can. You can be free from fear in this life. There are a bazillion examples of this. Let me give you one. Since we've already been in Philippians once today, let me read you just a short passage from Philippians chapter 1. We're in Philippians 2. Turn the page back if you're there. Philippians 1 verse 19. Paul's in prison. That's a bad thing. Okay, this is what he says. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, he's been arrested. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, he says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then here's his, this famous line from Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, to live is as Christ intended it to be. I was created to live. And to die is somehow even better right to die is gain to die is bonus for me right he goes on to say if i am to go on living in the body this will mean fruitful labor for me yet what shall i choose i do not know i'm torn between the two i desire to depart and be with christ which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that i remain okay paul's in a bad place but paul's not afraid why? Because the death and burial and dissension of Christ has sunk into his soul. He understands the pastoral and practical ramifications of that. And so now he's living free from fear. In other words, like, what are you going to do, kill me? It's not a problem anymore based on my message, says Paul. Right? You can be free from fear in this life. A second reason this all matters is we can have great assurance in Death. In death, Jesus has been there and done that. He fully took our place. He went all the way into the human experience of dying and death itself. He will be there with us as we travel the entire journey of human life all the way to, and here's the thing that really gives me comfort, through death. He'll be there. This is what J.I. Packer says about this. This is really, um, whoops, sorry, I didn't put that up there. Great assurance in death. What makes Jesus' entry into Hades important for us is simply the fact that now we can face death knowing that when uh, when it comes, it's going off the screen, uh, when it comes, we shall not find ourselves alone. He has been there before us He will see us through. Amen? Amen. Third reason this matters, we can have great hope in the victory of God's grace. We can have great hope in the victory of God's grace. How will it work out? Well, there will be justice and there will be mercy. But I can have great hope in the victory of God's grace. The impact, in other words, that Jesus has on death is a hopeful impact. Peter says he preached to the dead. He declares some sort of triumph over sin and death. Early Christian writers expounding on this portion of Peter's letter see Jesus preaching a message of victory to the dead and then leading those whose hope during life was in Christ, was in the coming Messiah, was in the idea that God would rescue them out from the place of dead and into the place of paradise. So this is a mysterious scene, as you can imagine. All kinds of possibilities are opened up with this, but all of the possibilities are hopeful. Put it this way, if you were to hand Jesus a page from a coloring book of death, he would color it with hope. Okay. He would just, it would just be washed over with hope. Not only has Jesus been uh, through death, not only has Jesus done death, But now, because of Jesus, even death is colored with hope. Even death has the flavor of grace. Why? Because not only did Jesus himself overcome death, but when he was dead, he was preaching hope. (laughs) His mind blowing, right? Jesus brought hope to the dead. So maybe you're looking at a situation in your life and it is just too far gone. It's just over, it's hopeless. It's like it's dead. Maybe it's a dead dream, maybe it's a dead relationship. It's just hopeless. It might as well just be dead. It's it's well, I got news for you. It's not hopeless anymore. Right? Because something changed. Jesus preached hope to the dead. So you can't get any deader than dead and you can't get any better than hope and Jesus combines the two. Therefore, it's different now. There is nothing that is beyond the reach of God. There is some, there's nowhere you can go that's too far for him to reach you. Right? Because Jesus went to the worst place, to the lowest place, to the farthest place from God, however you want to put it, and also brought hope there, therefore there is no place that is beyond hope. Right? There is no reason that you should give up hope because Because Christ was crucified, died, and buried, and descended. This is what King David says, one of my favorite psalms. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Uh, I invite you to consider this image as we close. Wherever you are, wherever you are, Whatever you're facing, Jesus can be your hopeful guide. He can be your hopeful guide. Why? Well, because he's been there. He knows the way through that part. He's been there before. He's done that. He knows the way through. And he can even bring hope to that situation. Because he will guide you through it as the proclaimer of hope. He's been there, he knows, and he colors it with hope, all right? So I'm gonna pause, I'm gonna pray, but I wanna give you a second uh, before we continue on, and I wanna invite you, just in a moment of silence, to identify on your notes or in your journal, or in your mind, if you don't have a piece of paper, something in your life, a situation that's just, that's hopeless, a situation that feels dead, And I just want to invite you to sit with the reality that that Jesus has been there and done that. There is some essential element of whatever that situation is for you, that hopeless situation. The essential piece of that, Jesus has also experienced. He was tempted in all ways as we are. And he brings hope. So let's pause for a minute. And it would be most helpful if you identify a specific thing in your life and then sit with the assertion, sit with the, with the disturbing possibility that Jesus can guide you through that situation with hope. Right. Lord, bless us as we rest in the presence of your love. Give us grace to be honest and to receive your word into our lives. Father, may all of our lives, the upswings, the stable parts, the big scary crashes, may all of our lives be seen in a perspective that is truly Christian, that recognizes the reality. We are not alone in this. You have been here. You still are here, able to lead us through with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for a minute?